0: That's Mike. As a freelance copywriter, his work has brought in over £170 million in sales for the companies he's worked for. Mike likes coffee, reading, picking up heavy shit, training till he's sweaty and generally running more long distance events than any other person I know. Like, think 100 plus mile stuff. In other
1: words, he's a bit weird.
0: In this episode, we cover why you should niche and why some people get away with not.
1: To sort of almost put, to, uh, put a counter argument there, there are some big names who don't niche. And so I think a lot of people look at those and go, oh, well, so-and-so doesn't niche, so I don't need to. But the thing with that is they've probably got a big following or they do personal branding very, very well. So you're James Smith, you Joe Wicks, those kind of people. Yeah, they don't think you have a niche, but... You're not either of those people.
0: How Mike has gone from the fitness industry to the wordsmith he is today, the difference between content writing and copywriting, and generally how and why words can change your business even in an era dominated by video. Welcome back, guys and dolls. We are here with Mr. Mike Samuels. And to kick things off, I'm going to be like, Mike, why does does writing even matter anymore? Like, why does it matter in the era of video and everyone just sticking their face in front of shit surely the written word is fucking irrelevant why am i why am i clearly i think i'm wrong by the way i'm not (laughs) i'm not gonna stand by that point but why why do you think that's a pile of horseshit if you do in fact think that's a pile of horseshit
1: (laughs) i mean you potentially make (laughs) quite a valid point um (laughs) yeah let's be honest there are a lot of people who are going away from writing i would say that it's one of those things where it's Without sounding too overly cliche and cheesy, sort of writing is everything. So even if you are looking that generally we're consuming media in different forms, so social media, YouTube videos, all that kind of stuff, there still has to be copy that goes into that. There still have to be script written. Um unless you're talking about, I don't know, sort of super short things that are more meme-related and stuff, but in my opinion, they sort of catch people's attention, they make people laugh, they don't really compel people to, to do anything specifically. And then if you just look at uh, things standing the test of time, like writing has been there for goodness knows how many years, before everything else, it's still going. Humans love a story. If you want to communicate your message, if you want to persuade people, you need maybe not sort of writing in the sense of actually being able to sit down and, and put words on a page, but you need to know the components of storytelling, persuasion, whatnot. And I think writing is, a, uh, is an exceptionally good skill to convey that.
0: So basically what he's just said is even if you don't write, you kind of need to write most of your video content. I would, I mean, I would agree. Like if, I think gone are the days back in the Facebook days, early days, this, you could almost get away with just pressing the record button <laughs> and waffling a bit inanely around the reeking and like, it'd still kind of go okay. Cause not many people were doing it. And I think that's, that's completely gone. And if, if there's anything I see with uh, a lot of coaches, it's that they think oh, if I just start talking to camera, then, then I'm ticking the box. I'm doing the talking to camera thing and that that must be enough. And I would, I think scripting that shit out or at least having very clear bullet points and a structure for where you're going is, is crucial, which to me, I'm hearing the same thing of like, yeah, you're going to need to storytell. You're going to need to know where you're going with these bits. And really, so I think the fundamentals of being good on camera are quite similar to writing. And the more trainers I've spoke to about this, like most of them suck at doing it because they don't do any planning. <laughs> and the planning bit is pretty much kind of writing and stuff. So maybe this, um, I mean, you, you touched on the word storytelling, so we'll pull back to that in a bit. But before we even get into that, I wanted to ask kind of one thing because I get some, maybe this is because I felt like this as a young trainer, but like, why should I bother niching? I like working with a wide variety of people, right? I like working with this 47-year-old mum of two and also this 20-year-old person because I work on the gym floor and stuff and then you start kind of moving online, there's sometimes this hesitation and resistance to having a demographic, to having a niche. If you were trying to get across the importance of why you should have one and why it matters, where would you start?
1: I would say that to sort of almost put, to, uh, put a counter argument there, there are some big names who don't niche. And so I think hmm. a lot of people look at those and go, oh, well, so-and-so doesn't niche, so I don't need to. But the thing with that is they've probably got a big following or they do personal branding very, very well. So you James mm-hmm. Smith, you Joe Wicks, those kind of people. Yeah, they don't think you have a niche, but you're not either of those people. I say the same thing in a business context, and people say, oh, well, Tony Robbins does everything for everyone. It's like, yeah, but you're not. hands, So I'm not, not sure I'd want to work with those people particularly, but yeah. you've know, got the social proof. So in terms of niching, it's definitely a case that from a copy standpoint and from a marketing standpoint, we want to say things that are specific to our target audience. Like if you went to, if you needed a spinal surgery and you went to a doctor and he just, a minute before had cured someone's athlete's foot, and then the next minute was having a a patient who was going through a manic episode and then was fitting your spinal surgery in the middle of those, you'd be somewhat worried as to his his competence for fixing your complicated spinal injury. Whereas if you went someone who was just a spinal surgeon, you'd be very happy that they're probably going to be able to do a good job. And while we're not talking about tracking macros and lifting weights as necessarily being as risky as spinal surgery, at the same time, people want to feel like you get them. They want to feel that you understand their pain points. Your copy needs to convey that you need to show that you essentially, if you can make it feel almost like you're inside their head and potentially mm. even saying stuff they've not vocalized to their significant other or whoever it is. That in itself is incredibly powerful. And so I don't feel you can really get that unless you're gonna be prepared to niche down. Some people go a bit extreme with it. And I think, again, that's, uh, you know, I only train, I don't know, sort of a female 23 year olds who've had an eating disorder for 18 months and who want to, uh, you know, double their bench press weight. weights. Like, well, <laughs> that,
0: yeah. ni- that is a niche, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: In fairness, you would absolutely dominate that market and you would probably have 100% of clients, but you would also only have two clients. Yeah. (laughs) For me, there has to be a a bit of give and take. But if you're just saying, I'm going to target everyone, I don't think that's a smart move. Again, you can link the whole, I mentioned personality branding and that kind of stuff. I would still encourage people to have that as well. But when it comes to writing copy, if you don't have a niche, you're going to just be putting stuff out there that people go, well, that sounds okay. And unfortunately, where there's so much competition now, sounding OK is not going to be enough to get people to actually pay you money, ultimately.
2: If if someone's struggling to, to niche down and find that area, what advice could you give them um, in terms of, OK, I've got all these people I like working with. Where do I go with it?
1: I'd normally say two things. either go for the niche that excites you the most or the one you've already got the most social proof in. We know how powerful social proof is for marketing. It's like... I can tell you that you should come and work with me for copy. But if I actually give you 10 people who've done that and who've got good results from it, that's going to be much more compelling. So if you've been, a, if you're, let's say you're looking to go online and you've been a one-on-one PT in the gym and actually you've just naturally attracted guys over 50 who sort of work at executive level positions, maybe that's who you want to go with online because if you've got 15 case studies of guys who you've got to sort of on average drop 25 pounds and get fitter and whatever that's gonna help you marketing straight away. Or maybe you don't wanna do that, but maybe you have a passion for working with, I don't know, women who wanna get on the the competition stage, for example. I think in that sense, you've got to weigh it up as to what will be a smarter move for you and how much you're concerned about income straight out of the gate. But ultimately, I think people should be in business doing something they enjoy. If you really wanna get away from that niche you've done a lot in, that's okay. Just to accept that it might take a bit longer time but go for what actually excites you more and, and lights you up, basically. Yeah,
0: yeah cool. I think that's
2: the key thing there is having an appreciation that if you are going to change niche, so say you've gone from face-to-face coaching and then you're going online and you were working with 35-plus-year-old women and now you want to work with 25-year-old bodybuilders, you've got to have there's going to be a drop in business as you try and push towards that audience before things potentially build up again. Um, I think people haven't got that almost expectation that now if they want to go and work with a certain area, there's going to
0: be a bit of a drop before they can build back up. I really like that bit that you said as well of, of getting in the head of someone and being able to vocalize something that maybe they haven't said about themselves. Because I think it speaks to the heart of the point of all of this stuff is like look, you might in your head think you can help lots of different people. And that was probably true. You could probably can help a lot of different people. But that doesn't mean you can talk to all of them in a way that they'll pay any attention to. And that's because you're talking to their brain, their quiet bit that's inside that skull that no one else gets to. So I really like that kind of idea of, of doing that. So, okay, well, let's, let's... So Mike's story has involved PTing all the way through copyright, as we said during the intro kind of stuff. And I'm sure you've made a whole bunch of fuck-ups along, <laughs> along the way with that. Any of them stand out in particular and maybe some lessons and shit you've taken from it?
1: Um. Do you want just general fuck ups or fuck ups that have contributed to career growth?
0: Both. I'm happy with I. Any. Oh, okay. These are all
2: good. Anything <laughs> in life. It doesn't even have to be career. Okay, exactly.
1: <laughs> so I mean, just general fuck up would have been practicing standing ab wheel rollout, showing it to a female client. Her going, that'd be that looks really cool. Can I have a go at it on her concrete patio? And I me mean, going, yeah, cool. Go ahead. Uh, so. Yeah, I have, I have contributed in uh, a woman getting a black eye through a personal training session. That's uh, good, and that didn't contribute to career growth at all. Uh, <laughs> I would <tell> say that <coughs> career-wise, I think I made a lot of the cliche ones, the typical ones. Um, for me, it's less of a less of a personal fuck up. I would say that a big thing that was potentially quite a negative or quite a setback that turned out to be a positive thing was the Uh, It was around about 2013, I think. I was trying to get out of doing one-on-one PT. I had a bit of online work, but I was also trying to get into writing at that stage as well. And I had a freelance position as a content writer for Livestrong and used to churn out quite a lot of articles for them. About 50% of my income came from that one gig. And I felt like I was really making good headway, getting into the writing game, being paid for articles. And I was falsely accused of plagiarizing uh, not plagiarizing copy, but falsely um like uh, falsifying a reference from a, an article fired had no comeback to it. All my sort of permissions to the the like email addresses for the people at the company were taken away overnight. Um, but that actually led to me I had a uh, an ebook that I'd been working on, but basically just been lazy and hadn't got around to releasing it. That, um, that kicked me up the ass to get that into gear. And that was pretty much the start of my proper online coaching journey, digital products, getting into copyright and that kind of thing. So whilst it wasn't actually a fuck up, I would say that's not a bad example of something that has been, yeah, potentially, at the time I was like, shit, this is bad. I feel like I'm gonna go massively backwards, lost a load of my income, to this is actually a very good thing when I look back on it now.
0: How much of the the of you as a writer has changed since those kind of early days of writing then versus now, how much of it is is kind of the same?
1: I would say for those back then, I didn't really know what copywriting was. I was more just content writing. So yes. I was still, I was very much reading like T-Nation and the FTS, that kind of stuff. So I did sort of understand good writing. By the way, this
0: is aging all of us because there's <laughs> going to be a bunch of people listening to this being like, what are those? Who's Dave Tate? What, what's T-Nation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, carry on
1: it's still depressing when i go to seminars and things and i'm sure that i used to be the youngest person there oh, yeah. <laughs> like there's maybe one person older than you if you're lucky well,
0: me me and you i think met in 2012 or 13 it's something like that a, a, a maybe an sbs seminar i think the first time so
1: uh, okay. yeah.
0: people will be like who who's sbs yeah. what's going on we'll have luke johnson on soon actually the the founder of sbs and that's a whole other story but anyway back to back to you as a, as a writer
1: So yeah, I suppose I've been uh, reading people like Nate Green was a big influence, reading like Eric Cressy's articles, Tony Gentlepool, people like that. So I did sort of understand writing. I had a blog, so I wrote in a very personalized way. And actually, when I had my one-on-one PT business, a lot of people said, I found your website, and the thing that made me reach out to you was because you didn't sound like a trainer. You actually sounded like Mm -hmm. someone who was just normal. In that sense, I think that my writing style has not really changed a lot because I still write from a personal standpoint. Yeah. I don't write any corporate copy. I occasionally have clients who are a bit more corporate, but I try to not work with them really just I don't <laughs> like it. It's not my style, to be honest. But I would say that from a copy perspective, I got into copy in what 2015, probably 2014, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I would just say that it's probably very similar to training like you learn the rules so you know how and when to break them that's been my big thing is that i always used to think well a sales page must follow this structure and a headline must follow this structure and if you're doing a launch you absolutely have to email every day and then you email four times on the last day and if people don't want to do that they're pussies because they shouldn't be afraid of pissing off their list and then you get into it. And go actually. They're more tactical things rather than principles. So that's probably to, to put uh, an umbrella over. it. I'd say I'm much less focused on tactics now, much more on principles.
0: That's kind of interesting. So for people who, uh, and then I'll let you ask a question because I'm going to keep interrupting him because, you know, my bad. Sorry, buddy. Uh, <laughs> I reckon there's probably a bunch of people listening to this. that Because they're trainers, they will hear people say some of these words, like a copywriter, a content writer, a personal brand, all of this stuff. I find there's certain terms that people are almost afraid to be like, I don't fully really know what exactly he means when he says some of those bits. So in like, in your head, what is a copywriter? What's a content writer? What's a personal brand?
1: So a copywriter would be anyone who writes something that the intention is to elicit an action from people. And that action would usually be buying something. So a sales page, an email that sells something could be a landing page where someone has to opt in with their email address. It could be a Facebook ad, a YouTube ad script, the way I define it is that for me, a copywriter generally writes what I would call direct response copy. So you're looking for a direct response, normally a sale. Content writer, I think content writer is much more about sharing information. There is definitely a crossover. Like if you've got a, a call to action in a piece of content, is it content, is it copy? It's probably a mix of both. Likewise for for, uh, for copywriting, you probably want some content in there because if you're all you're doing is selling... <laughs> you're not really going to be delivering much value, you're not going to be standing out. So there there can definitely be a blurred line. Uh, Ultimately, though, a copywriter generally will charge more money just because your work is directly seeing a financial return. And then personal branding, I suppose the way I define that is what are your values and what do you share with people. So you look at all the big brands out there, they're going to have, even though they're big brands, they're going to have elements of what they share in terms of their values. Uh, and again, if you use those examples from earlier, look at people like James Smith, it's like, what's his personal branding? Well, it's certainly back in the day, it was those videos, it was call outs, it was not taking stuff too seriously, it was being quite abrasive, it was not sugarcoating anything. That's his personal branding. You might love it, you might hate it, you might be like me and think, that's fine, but it doesn't really do a lot for me. But it's effectively not being too afraid to polarize people, I would say. And thinking about what you stand for, what you stand against, and essentially sharing that kind of stuff within just sharing content, information, however you want to put that.
2: So just circling back around to your previous comment, you mentioned about you follow certain tactics um, and certain almost plenty like frameworks now. For someone who hasn't got someone like yourself in their corner and a copywriter to, (laughs) to write copy for them what are some of the foundational tactics or frameworks or things that you could say, okay, if you're writing a post, if you're doing a sales page or like that, you want to be aware of this or follow this sort of format.
1: There's a very simple one. Something like, uh, what's known as the problem agitate solve formula. So much copy will revolve around that. So you talk about a problem, you agitate it. So that sounds a bit nasty and <laughs> can obviously be quite hard hitting with that. You know, you, Fat miserable fuck! Your kids. Probably-
0: <laughs> Regardless of what the copy is about, that's just something Mike likes to put in everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, sh- I really shouldn't share what I put in my dad's last birthday. <laughs> um, I-, I also should have probably checked that it's okay to swear on this podcast. Oh yeah,
0: mate, swear the fuck away!
1: <laughs>
2: I think we all know um, Paul well enough to know that's happened many times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the so,
1: least yeah.
0: of our concerns. <laughs>
1: So with that kind of stuff, uh, yeah, problem agitate, solve, you pose a problem, you agitate it a bit, you provide a solution. That solution would generally be some sort of call to action. So it could be, I've written a blog that tackles this or that shares three top tips. You might share some tips in the post or the solution might be booking a call with you. It might be signing up to something. That's a very simple structure. You've got a lot like that. There's another one that's AIDA. Um, That's attention, interest, desire, action, I think. So again, similar is something attention grabbing, you talk about something that interests them, talk about what they want to achieve. And the action is like, take an action to a sales page, book a call, that kind of stuff. There's loads of those around. I also think that without doing myself out of a job, AI tools are very, very useful now as well. I would caveat that that with, you need to be able to give them good inputs, you need to be able to give them good research, Uh, I made the reference earlier in something I wrote that expecting just to use an AI tool and get some great copy would be like essentially watching a Michelin star chef cook a meal, going to Tesco's, putting similar ingredients in your bag and then just putting them all in the pan. Like it's not going to (laughs) work. So you do need some form of copy and marketing knowledge to use that. But again, I would say that's a really useful tool. So leverage that. And the other thing would be, you can just model what works. A big thing for me that I tell people is that, there are people out there who've already sold stuff similar to what you're selling. They've done it very, very well. Have a look at what they're doing because success leaves clues. Not everything they do is going to have hit the mark. But if you can get on their email list, if you can look at their, uh, their social media posts, again, it might be that you're saying, well, this person's very successful. But if they've got 900,000 followers and you've got 15 followers, <laughs> it's probably not going to be that relevant. But look at people who are a bit further ahead of you look at the stuff they're doing as well and think, how can I put my own spin on that? Because we don't need to reinvent the wheel. It's literally a case of taking things that have, have worked for other people or even worked for yourself before, putting them in a, in a different spin, putting them out there, and they're probably going to do quite well.
0: When you start looking at other people's things like that, because I've come across people suggesting, you know, hand write out the copy that you see from people that you admire and like the work of. And it's a similar kind of idea, right? Let's go and mimic to some degree. Let's copy the copy. So excuse the pun, right? Um, by, by the way, does anyone know why it was started being called copy to
1: begin with? Uh, I did hear this the other day, and then I have completely forgotten so. <laughs> well. just message me
0: later when you find back out uh, <laughs> but the, the the idea of copying things out and I'm like I can sort of see where it comes from because a lot of stuff that we learn is mimicking is just copying what we what we see and do but I think maybe it's possible to copy something out without really learning the lessons of why you're copying it out and what you're looking for within that. So if you're kind of looking for something like that, or I mean, maybe a, is it advice you would give or have ever given or, or find utility in? And if so, what do you like about it? If not so much, where do you see it kind of go wrong and how would you make the most, maybe that's a better question. How would you make the most out of using that tactic?
1: I used to be very anti hand copying. Cause I just didn't see the point of it. Then I think like anything, it has its uses I did actually do a 30-day hand-copying course during lockdown, more so just because I got bored of doing laps of the living room, really, and it was just <laughs> some, something else to do. Uh, did I find it that useful? So-so. I, I would say I find it more useful for the fact that every single day copying something out, by the end of it, I then had 30 emails or 30 things I could use, 30 what I would call as swipes, so things you can take and, and model for yourself. the The big thing, as you alluded to, is are you actively engaging your brain when you do it and thinking about the mechanisms behind what you're writing? Because you could hand copy uh, one of the best performing emails or sales letters of all time. But if you're not actively trying to think, why am I doing this? Mm. It's not really going to work. So my preferred method of doing it would be either you can do your hand copying first if you want to, or you can go straight to writing a same version of that that you say it's an email because, sales letters can be like 10,000 words that's a, a whole lot of writing <laughs> but let's say it's uh it's an email that's 500 words i would personally change the change the product maybe or change the brand and think okay i'm going to use this angle or this structure how can i sell a slightly different product with this instead so it might oh, be that 60% of the copy is the same you're only going to change 30 to 40% of it but in my mind that's a bit of a I would say it's a better approach because you're modeling something, a structure that, you know, works, but you've also engaged your brain even more by having to put your own spin onto that. Yeah, no, I like that. I like the,
0: and it's it's a nice way of, of framing that idea of angles. And angles, we're going to come back to, there's only so many things that human beings are interested in getting or solving or escaping, right? It was going to be one of those types of of stuff. So if you think, I don't know that PT, and this is, did was this by the way something that came like naturally to you with some of that stuff or is this kind of learned as you went along the way
1: I don't think I was a natural writer particularly I wasn't bad at it I did okay with English at school I think it was more just I realized I wanted to get better at it so I just used to blog for fun effectively but I've never had any sort of formal education obviously done a fair few courses and whatnot but It's more just been, I would say I'm someone who learns a lot better from doing and getting stuff wrong and and getting stuff right. I think you do learn from. from (laughs) I've never got
0: anything right. It's just continually wrong.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll get there one day. Um, But yeah, I think for me, it's been, I hate it when people say it's been an organic process, but it has kind of been an organic process. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Just just following on that point there, you said about getting stuff wrong. Have we talked about some potential different tactics or things that can work for you to do? What are maybe some of the common things that you see coaches within copy, whether it's even just on social media uh, in terms of the mistakes they're making and things they're getting wrong when they're putting out different
0: types of posts? And obviously just for for, um, exposition on that, the vast majority of people who listen to this are PTs who will either be completely online, combination of online on the gym floor, etc type thing so we can narrow that down to that
1: probably a couple of things the one would be i don't think people are nearly as guilty of this let's say as they used to be but it's sharing information i think that the information age has come and gone you can get information from anywhere from google from ai from you know whoever it is so it's just sharing those same things that have just been done time and time again like i don't know five ways to lose weight, track your calories, get more steps, eat more vegetables, drink more water, whatever. It's like, yeah, People are, are kind of, they know that now, really. I'm not against sharing that advice, but I would always try and share things that are a bit more unique to you or package that advice up in something interesting. So a personal story or with that as well, it's normally best rather than sharing lots of ideas at surface level, share one idea at a much deeper level. People tend to, to respond better with that. And I would say the other thing is going a bit too hard on the selling angle. You'll find people in different camps with this. I, for my own personal stuff, I don't sell very often. And I think probably, if anything, I could get away with doing, with actively selling a lot more. But at the same time, I think so many people overdo it. And actually, audiences get what I would call offer blindness. So they almost become immune to seeing you put out an offer. So I'm not against having a call to action every post, but I certainly wouldn't make everything call to action be. Book a call with me, book a call with me, go here for coaching, that kind of stuff. I'd definitely mix that up. Otherwise, people would just, they basically zone out really because it just becomes noise in the end.
0: Kind of jab, jab hook, if anyone remembers Gary V's book title. Yeah. I feel like I see less of Gary V these days. Is that just me and my algorithm? Or is, or is that. You guys? I see
1: less of him, but I think I've deliberately tried to see less of him. But he puts out <laughs> some good stuff, but it's, yeah, it's a bit overkill, really. <laughs>
0: yeah i find that i find that with tony robbins stuff as well i'm like this is fine for all of 20 minutes and then i'm about like all right i get it <laughs> yeah. when
2: you when you first come across either of them 2 you like, oh they're cool they really draw you in but then yeah once you've seen it for
0: a month or two or so they're like yeah. they should do a thing together because they would be a funny double act <laughs> because he's enormous and gary v's not so enormous so that's the little and large that i think the marketing world doesn't know that it needs to have a have a little mashup together. <laughs> okay, so if we, if we roll into Wooker we'll with some of the kind of, well, we said this at the start, storytelling, right? The art of actually taking something, holding someone's attention and taking them on a bit of a journey. You also said that the age of information is effectively over to some degree. And I don't think Mike there, me of four means no one wants to learn anything ever again, but it's that <laughs> content as content producers is much less about, look at all this stuff I can inform you about for the most part and involves maybe some other things what makes a good story this is a broad question uh, good storytelling
1: the one thing i find with storytelling is that people get almost intimidated because they think well a story has to be really long beginning middle and end it has to have huge amounts of drama so it'd be like if you said to me tell me your story and i started back at well it was a, a sunny bank holiday monday on in 1990 at Southampton general hospital you'd be like yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be that interested in all that story. Really, you
0: too sunny as well. I want, I want cold, dark, windswept, and mysterious.
1: <laughs> I mean, that would be better. Apparently, it was quite a sunny day when I was born, but <laughs> yeah, things went downhill from there. Uh, but yeah, I think for me, storytelling is like you can turn anything into a bit of a story, and it's just about if we come back to the personal branding and the values thing again. That's the big thing. So. Because the thing is with the story, you're the only one who can tell that version of the story, and that's what people are interested in. So I could tell you about something that has happened, yeah, an experience that all of us do, like going shopping, for example. But if I put my own unique spin on it, that's something that only I can do. That's something that separates you from your competition because your competition won't have the same experiences as you, even if you both, oh, uh, if are saying there's two people, even if you both work in a commercial gym, you both train the same types of clients, all that kind of thing. So a story is going to make you stand out. But I think it's just making sure that for me, with a story, the details part matters. So a lot mm-hmm. of people will tell a story, but they just tell you the facts. They don't describe it. <laughs> and it's it's quite difficult. This is a skill that I think you have to learn, but making it making someone else feel like they're in the story rather than just sort of running through it quickly. So again, I would rather if people were going to tell me a story, I'd rather a, a shorter duration or a, more of like a micro story about something small, but I can really feel myself in that position rather than you try and tell me everything you did at the weekend and actually you do all you do is like a bullet point list of, I went out for dinner on Friday, then we went for drinks. Then I went to bed. It's like it reminds me of a
0: five-year-old telling a story. And then I had maths. And then uh, then it was um, um, lunch. And then <laughs> it's like this is
1: dull. <laughs> but if, if you picked one aspect of that story, not necessarily the learning maths or lunch one, but you know, Friday night went out for dinner. That that well, with weight loss or fitness or whatever, you could quite easily make a story out of that or even just the micro portion of that. So for me, a story can be like, even using a story as a kickoff point. So if you want to write an email or do a post, let's say about, I don't know, I'll pick something really easy, like the importance of uh, tracking calories. You could kick off with, I was at dinner on Friday night and got chatting with one of the friends I was with and talk about what they said and why that was wrong and, and what the advice should be. Okay, how I've described that is quite boring, but you can see how even just that is more interesting than going, Here's why you need to track calories because you're kicking off with a scenario, a story, something someone can relate to that puts you onto, puts them onto your level. If that makes sense, rather than them seeing you as a super boring fitness professional, they see you as, Oh, that's a person who actually does normal things like me.
0: I think there's a space for someone to pretend that their life is way more awesome than it is. So I was on my yacht doing Coke off strippers <laughs> and I was having a conversation <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I like that thing of, um, you know, crowbarring crowbarring is a bit harsh for it but stitching the points into a narrative that we get to follow along because we are and who knows why really but we are drawn to story undeniably and kids from a very small age will sit around and watch like, finding nemo try and find nemo right and if you stood back and went why are you watching about a story about a fish trying to find another fish like that does that's a weird thing to describe but we all even as adults, you'll we'll sit there happily watching this thing, like, shut up, you're interrupting my great story that I'm, that I'm watching. So we're clearly drawn to that. I was gonna if say you're don't not for, um, finding Nemo, because oh, I would the never find Nemo. Not time time. It. I mean, I was a, yeah, I would never, I would never speak ill of finding Nemo. Um if you were looking for uh so you've given us kind of one. I was at dinner and this, but like other ways of transitioning stories that you see in your life that you think might be vaguely interesting into the into the niche, into the point, into like making that switch from this was kind of funny to this is also relevant anything that you use for for that kind of thing or like doing
1: again it's a bit of a skill uh i refer to it as lesson linking so you have something and then you link it into a lesson and actually if you can practice that so if you can just think like what have i got around me okay there's a Tesco club card thing there. How quiet. Why is
0: that so close to you? Uh, <laughs> he actually pulled out a Tesco club card, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>
1: because at 33 years old, I finally got my first Tesco club card after realizing how much I've been ripped off in Tesco recently.
0: <laughs> yeah, they do pretty big discounts on their club card stuff. I
1: know. I this is the, the shit
0: people came to listen to.
1: <laughs> yeah. Save like £2.79 or something the other day. I was delighted. so I'm, I'm
2: just i'm just shocked that you've still got a club card and not a
0: little key ring. Just Oh no, forget it, you You can get it on the app on your phone.
1: Oh, I don't don't do apps, no. Uh, I have completely lost track of the question. Uh,
0: Lesson linking.
1: Oh, that was it, yeah. So if you can think, how can I link my Tesco club card to, uh, again, like fat loss, fitness, biomechanics, whatever it is, that's quite a cool skill to practice. So I will often do it. I think that's an interesting TV program. How does it relate back to copy? So that's the, that's like the big picture idea behind it. And then in terms of the actual transitions, you want some different ones every time, but it's the idea of you might be wondering about what, sorry, you might be wondering what my Tesco Club card has to do with you losing 20 pound for a holiday. Well, it's to do with, and then you go into the link, or it could be, uh, this is a lot like building muscle. The reason for that is because, and then you tell me what the link is. So as long as you've got a couple of segues, you essentially just bounce between them when you're doing yeah. that. Again, even just go to uh, whatever AI tool you use and put in a segue and say, can you give me 10 variations of this segue? There you go, just rotate between those. Even if you post every single day, you're only gonna be using the same segue three times a month. People aren't gonna remember that.
0: <clears throat> nice. So, uh, okay, we'll, well, I mean that that was pretty good. I don't think I need to ask any other questions on that part. Uh, <laughs> so we move then to you know maybe maybe the most important part of all of this to some degree, headlines, hooks, attention grabbing shit. How do we get people to pay attention to what we're about to say? Whether that's in video because we scripted it, or whether it's in the written word or whatever. What are your kind of go tos? What do you think makes a good headline or opening?
1: Bigger picture thought. My aim is always to get it. So, my headline or opening line or subject line doesn't matter as much. I want people to see that my name's in their inbox or scroll through their Instagram feed and stop and read it because it's me. So, So you are the
0: headline. That's basically what Mike is is wanting to
1: achieve. (laughs) I was thinking how arrogant I sounded, and then you just took it up and (laughs) then Yes. Fuck
0: me! It's, it's Samuel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Essentially, that yeah, I want one sort of women fainting in the street, and you know, their babies after me. <laughs> but if you can get to that level where people just read your content because they want to read your content, that would always be what I aim for. So, your grand plan is to try and make that hook whatever irrelevant. Mm. Uh, that said, in the meantime, the the one thing I will tell a lot of people is even if you don't have any, uh, any templates or whatever to go with, have a look at your opening line of a post or your headline on a Facebook ad, your email subject line, your sales page headline, and think, if I was heading out of the door in a rush for a meeting, would I happily make myself late for that meeting because I had to stop and read the rest of what was there? If you wouldn't, it's probably not a good opening line because if you're boring yourself, you're gonna bore other people. <laughs> So if you if you find you like that, the thing to do would be, again, there's so much stuff out there that uh that's been proven to work before in that respect. So I'd be keeping a swipe file. So anytime you see a post that grabs your attention, screenshot it, save it in a folder. Uh sign up for different emails, different email lists with people you respect and admire, whether they're in fitness or whether they're in different niches. Probably going to be more in different niches, I would say. So you get on the list of different copywriters, different marketers. Any any niches where they have a big, um, like direct response copy plays a big part. So supplements, health, finance, that kind of thing. Uh, and then model what they're doing. Um, I had one other thing as well that has completely slipped my mind. Um, yeah, I'll give you those for now. And maybe I'll them what
0: <laughs> at some point we randomly be like, oh, and then this. Sure. All right, so if if okay, so if we if we zoom back a, a, again a little bit and go, all right, we got a, a coach who's starting out. They're trying to generate and grow a bit of an online business for for coaching. And they're, but they're right at the start, so they don't like right, well, Okay, I've got to try and niche this thing down. I've got to try and get better at writing copy and communicating and and having all this stuff going on. And I also need producty things and what exactly am I kind of selling is that where would you start in that kind of list? Would you start with clarifying what your product stuff is before you start worrying about too much else, or would you just start rolling things out and going it's coaching. I kind of know what it is or like, how would you start if you were starting again, maybe that's the best question for this. If you were starting again and you weren't allowed to go into copyright and you had to stay working as an online coach, how, where would you start? How would you walk yourself through the process?
1: Um, I think, okay, so for this scenario, have we got any warm connections or are we talking about absolutely no one at all? <sighs>
0: hmm. How harsh do you want to be to him, Jimbo? You couldn't be I'd say you've you got some
2: warm connections, warm leads. You've got a client base of 10 clients or something like that because most people listening to this will have something there rather That's than true. day one of the industry just passing a PT course oh,
0: I've heard of the PT Party Boys. <laughs> so, Jimbo's being nicer. I was like, no one knows you. You've been in Siberia. No one's no, Okay. <laughs> All right, so you've got 10 clients, give or take, off your drop.
1: I mean, to be honest, I probably launched my Siberian Fat Loss system or something. <laughs> That's
0: <laughs> actually a good name. Uh,
1: <laughs> Siberian Shred, there we go. Oh, I'd, I'd click that link. <laughs> I'd just be curious. I'd be like, what's in it? And I, I think that... If if I knew who I wanted to target, I would kind of I essentially decide on that and I'd put some ideas together for what I wanted to offer, how it's was going to be different. I'd do a bit of competitor analysis to make sure that I wasn't offering the exact same thing as them, whether it's in terms of deliverables, mechanisms, that kind of stuff. But I think most people, if they're coming from more just training general population people in person, um, probably the thing to do would be you could run a survey with your clients, potentially. I'm always a bit sceptical of surveys because people tend to give the answers that they think they should rather than the the answers they actually believe. <laughs> but I would leverage current connections. So I might even run, to be fair, this is what I did, actually, when I started out with online back in like 2012 or so, I think, was I just reached out to everyone who was a current in-person client, everyone I trained before, anyone who'd inquired. I think I probably put out to my social media at the time as well. Uh, and essentially said I was running a beta program. So I had some ideas for an online program. <clears throat> I didn't want to do it for free because I don't think people value free stuff. But I mean, mine was still ch- stupidly cheap at the time. It was like 40 quid a month or something. Because my plan was, <laughs> to, my plan was to charge a, a whopping 80 pounds a month. So I thought, well, will offer it for 50%.
0: <clears throat> Mate, my first rates were 65 and 85 pound a month, I think.
1: <laughs> I don't know what I thought
0: the difference between those two was really, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's where mine's at. The premium package at 85. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Ultimate coaching.
1: Are we doing like sort of unlimited text support and
2: like
1: Zoom call and stuff?
0: (laughs) Zoom wasn't even a thing at that. You could text.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'd essentially launch some kind of beta program, pilot program, whatever you want to call it, and use that to get case studies, get testimonials, that kind of thing. I would charge for it because, like I said, I think if you do it for free, people aren't going to bother with it. That's not particularly a copy thing. So I'll give you more sort of copied or copified answer if you want. But I would go sort of get the low hanging fruit, I suppose, is the phrase. Find people who've already got some sort of buy-in with you. Offer them a good deal in return for, I get to use your results. I get some feedback on it. And essentially, you can then take that and roll it out to a large scale. Because for me, big mistake a lot of people make is they build a website. They... Maybe they create modules in some sort of membership site. They do a a sales page or some version of it. And they put something out there that actually no one really wants, which sucks. And we all do it because we all get excited about creating things. But if you've got no feedback, it's like you're taking a bit of a risk on whether people actually want that or not.
2: So a big thing there, you've, you've got to create, or sorry, you've got to sell first almost before creating. Yeah. In a sense, and then build as you go which so many of us are like perfectionists and we want things to be perfect before they're out there where it's like no you've just got to be willing to put it out there
1: yeah a lot of people are afraid to do that but i've certainly the last three courses i've done i think i've created the first module of them then i've gone and done all the sales stuff sent it out there and just said to people "You get access every single week i'll open up the next module just as soon as I had enough people to make it viable, then I've created the second module. So by the time people start module one, module two is created and I just stayed a week ahead of it.
0: Mate, we do, we did exactly the same thing with the first time we ran the, the mentorship thing that we run. It's kind of like, right, I know what the outline is. I know what's going to be in all these bits. Let's make the first, I think we had the first two weeks maybe ready. Um, And then we'll scope. Like, <laughs> like that pressure is quite useful in being like, right, I know where I've got to go with this. I would still say have, you know, you listening to that still know where you're going to go <laughs> with the thing that you're making rather than being completely open-ended but like use that pressure of going like fuck it right let's let's make this shit like i think we've i think most people i know by the way who run businesses of this type of scale type thing do the exact same thing <laughs> i i'm trying to think do we know anyone who completely has made all of it before they launch any of it you guys know anyone no. i've got no i like, know no
1: I would say anyone with much of an idea about business wouldn't do that because they recognize that even with the brightest marketing brain around, you're probably not going to get your course content, your product content 100% in line with what the audience wants. So it's best to sell it first and then fill it. Obviously, if you're selling a physical product, that's a bit different. Or if you're selling like an ebook, that has to created. The
0: car's not actually here, lads. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a an
1: wheel. <laughs> Even with that, you could effectively sell something and say it's not going to be ready for four weeks. But if you want to get it now, uh, how many
0: car companies do that? You could you get say, you buying on the
2: Have you watched the Elon Musk documentary? Yeah, with Tesla,
0: he
2: <laughs> <You laughs> you know, oversold
0: it and didn't have it available for months, if not years. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's a good. It's a good point. It's the, same, it's the exact same idea. Being like, right, pressure's on now, lads. <laughs> we've got we've got to fill ten thousand of these orders of a car. Uh, so let's make it kind of work. Yeah, okay. Um, Just just circling back around there in terms of putting something out there from a
2: copy perspective, how important would you say the product name stroke tag is to draw draw people in? So your Siberian shred, (laughs) six-part framework to take you from fucking fat... Pathetic (laughs) Polish farmer to shredded (laughs) Siberian fucking kulak. How how important is that part there, the name and the tag, um, in sort of the sale and in drawing people in
1: i used to say it hardly mattered at all but i've done almost a complete 180 on that and that's pretty much because of marketplace sophistication i think so essentially marketplace sophistication would be to put it simply how much competition is out there in the market and how aware of every option your target audience is so online coaching like 10 years ago you could say I'm an online coach and people go oh that's new Cool. I'll give that a go because I've not heard it before now most people have heard of online coaching so if you just say well I, I offer online coaching most people will think well I know what that is I've already got preconceived notions about it so if they know they want an online coach and you appeal to them they'll go for it if not they're going to think okay but this guy charges 200 pounds a month I've got you know my uh, my friend's son does online coaching here he charges 40 pounds a month I'm going to go to him Whereas if you've got a unique system, uh, and it's more about, I think, having a unique mechanism or a unique system rather than necessarily the name. But if you've got something that no one else has, people are going to be more likely to buy into you because they think that's different. I've not heard of that before. So anytime you can talk about, you know, my so-and-so system, my so-and-so method, my this, that, and the other protocol, I would say do it as long as it doesn't sound overly cheesy and cliche. Like if you were coaching high level bodybuilders, let's say, who are very, very clued up on their training, and you said, like, I've got the the Swole three thousand system that's gonna help <laughs> you add twenty pounds of lean tissue this year, they're probably gonna go, This guy is bullshitting me. They'll respond more just to like social proof of other people like them. But anyone who's got less of an awareness of the marketplace and is a bit newer, if you did do that, yeah, the Siberian shred or whatever it is, the, you know, here's my uh this already sort a of thing, is it like reverse pyramiding system for for strength gain? That's going to be more appealing than if you say I'm a an online coach who helps you with your strength.
0: That actually reminds me of one of I think some of your earlier stuff. God, I'm throwing this back a, a little bit now, but you had a bunch of shit on daily undulating periodization when that was kind of like yeah. new and and interesting. And I, I guess that's the exact same thing. Was that something you were thinking of at the time, or something you just kind of latched onto and was like, "This is cool. I want to make a thing on this."
1: So that, and we had a product called SheLifts as well, that was a female strength training. I uh, don't
0: remember She Lifts. Uh, clearly, uh, it was named at me.
1: Probably <laughs> <laughs> right, because right, we didn't target you. Was it? Uh, <laughs> this
0: is bullshit. I feel left out.
1: <laughs> but with that, I was I actually teamed up with a guy called Jason Maxwell, who was very switched on with his marketing. Uh, he ran a company called J Max Fitness and had worked a lot with John Goodman when mm-hmm. John Goodman was starting out. So. That was actually a really good learning experience because I was sort of doing some of this stuff subconsciously, but then he introduced me a lot more to testing. So with like she lifts, for example, we actually surveyed both of our female audiences for the names for potential names, and that was the winner. So we picked that. Nice. So with that kind of thing, he he was very useful to show me that if you're able to latch onto trends to a degree, you can do very well with that. And it can be stuff that other people are doing as well. I think that's where people get confused because one of the products I have was called Feast and Torch Fat, which I look back now and sort of smile to a degree. (laughs) But that was all based around intermittent fasting. Again, at the time though, had I said, this is just intermittent fasting, people would say, well, I've got Eat Stop Eat or Lean Gains or whatever. So you put a slight spin on it. You can essentially offer the same kind of thing, but you sound a bit unique. So if there is a trend or whatever, I think if you can get on that and you can do it in a way that's ethical, that lines up with what you believe in. So yeah, if if all of a sudden you jumped on selling a vegan program just to make money, I'm not sure I would particularly endorse doing that. But if you can find something that's fairly relevant and put your own spin on it, that's uh, almost like a double whammy for me in terms of you've got the people's interest initially because it's newsworthy as current. And then you've got the other factor of, but there's a spin on what they've already heard of that's uh, a good recipe for having something that people are probably going to be interested in.
0: I just learned that Mike's a fanny and has ethics and not just about the cold hard cash. And so my respect for him has decreased. <laughs> Let me sell my vegan things. Um, <laughs> that was actually kind of cool to, um, to hear. Actually, John Goodman's something we should get on the uh, on the podcast. If you guys don't know John Goodman, um, you should. So just search John Goodman these days on Instagram. But, but when- not the overweight dead actor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, did he die? When did he
1: die? I think he died. If, if he didn't, I'm probably going to get If he's not
0: died, this is my favorite thing you've said so far. Uh, but no, John Goodman, J-O-N, not H-N, um, Canadian dude. But he was one of the early guys talking really about the business of running online coaches from what, probably about 2011, 2012, I think.
1: Yeah, I was in his first mentoring program that was called Viralnomics that would have been about 2012, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, see, this this is – again, we're just – this is three – I like the fact we've decided to call ourselves old guys in the industry now. Like Jimbo's literally just turned 40. Me, me and Mike are in our 30s. Uh, with it, we're, we're old now, apparently. Any, any of your it. 30s is old in the fitness industry. So. Yeah, I feel like it's that. I feel like if I was talking to any other industry, the fact that we'd be calling ourselves like, oh, we've been doing this for ages. If I said that to like a plumber friend of my dad's, who's like 60-something, he's been a plumber since he was 18, he'd probably, rightfully so, hit me with a pipe. Um, But in this industry, that's that's kind of the the online fitness industry is from around then. That's really when it starts, 2010-ish maybe. There might have been a couple of sites just before that, but really, it's the the, the 2010s onwards. And so it is still quite a new career, really. Um, And I suppose some of the stuff that worked early on, maybe relating to that marketplace sophistication idea, is when you're in a completely new space, you don't have to be sophisticated particularly because there's fucking no one else there. You're like you get to dominate that space. You are the only option. Uh, you know you've got a, to some degree a captive market. It's like selling food at a festival. Ha! You can jack your prices up because you can't really go anywhere else. But as that thing gets more and more um, saturated with people, all the, the the strategies and little things that you do start to change, but maybe the overriding principles still kind of remain the same behind that. I suppose.
1: I think that's the mistake a lot of people make in fitness is that <clears throat> they forget that. <clears throat> Audiences are definitely more advanced, they've got more knowledge now. You can't just say, I can help you lose weight because they've heard that so many times before. Again, it's not to say you make up something you don't believe in, or you come up with some really random odd system, but you've got to kind of move with the times and realize that certainly online as well, there's a higher level of awareness than in a gym. In a gym as well, you've got the fact that people can get to know you a bit more because you're there in person. I'm assuming you're an approachable, friendly person. You're not like a miserable <laughs> introvert like me, which is probably why I never did that well in the gym. But <clears throat> ultimately, you've got a bit more buy-in with people in person. So if you are looking to go online, then actually you need to work harder at what your offer is. You can't just rely on people getting to know you, people liking you, because there's so many other people that we follow who are doing the same thing that, yeah, you've got to have something that makes you stand out a bit.
0: Yeah, that kind of like, like no trust thing that you'll hear quite a bit. Like I've said this before on the podcast, but you can pick up a person as a client in person within five minutes of chatting to them sometimes. I've I picked up a few clients over the years, a good few clients over the years. That way, five, 10 minutes of chat and they're paying you just after that. That never happens online, never, ever. I almost don't care, so, certainly not for coaching. Like I don't care how good your copy is or all the rest of anything is. Like the lead time to generate that because it's, more one way. Whereas we get to have a conversation in person. And so you get to ask stuff and I can answer it directly. And you get more of a feel for stuff. That It's quite different. So building that in, uh, in-person in business is, is, I think, actually quicker and easier. Whereas this online stuff is, hopefully, if you've been listening to this, you're going, oh man, there's a whole bunch of skills that I didn't think I needed to have as a trainer because they're not obviously part of being a personal trainer, but they are part of being an online fitness person. And that's where this differentiation starts to come. And one of the reasons it will take you longer to get a career out of this thing is you're going to have to learn a bunch of skills you probably don't have yet. And so that kind of takes a bit longer. All right. If we wrap things up with one last question, it doesn't have too much to do with copy, but I'm kind of curious anyway, Mike's favorite writers, and this can be in anything, it could be copy. It can be just in life and kind of why.
1: I'd say fiction-wise, uh, I'm a big Irvin Welsh fan, partly because so he's the guy who wrote Train Spotting and films sort of, what was the other films they had? uh with James McAvoy, Filth, I think. Yeah. Um, and Spotting 2, that was actually, I think that was a book, I think that was his book, Is Skagg there Train Boys? Spotting 2? Yeah, there is a film Spotting 2, but I'm sure that book was actually called Skag Boys.
0: That's a better name. Although yeah, I can see cool. why they called it Train Spotting 2, because yeah. you kind of have to sell off the back of the success.
1: So I do like his stuff. It's very formulaic. I'm sure if you taught someone who was a real writing purist, they'd say it's just complete dross. But yeah. very good. He writes in Scottish. So you have to be able to learn the Scottish slang, which I enjoy. Uh with like
0: deep Ma- Scottish roots, if you can't tell on the uh <laughs> on the vocal here.
1: Uh yeah, Mike Mook Samuels. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm stereotyping in any way whatsoever.
0: <laughs> Mike's never allowed in Glasgow again.
1: <laughs> uh so yeah, I do enjoy his stuff. Uh there's a Ukrainian writer called Andrei Kirkov, who I'm very uh, <clears throat> yeah, like all of his stuff. Just what very you write about? Um I don't know, it's a difficult one to say. Like it's just it doesn't seem to be a particular link or a particular theme with his stories, but they're all very much I'd say kind of working class ukrainian people in odd right. situations but yeah his stuff's very good um not for any specific reason but yeah i just enjoy it and then
0: how did yeah. you find him by the way who finds a working class ukrainian writer as one of the that's just clearly one of my uh one of my top five
1: I, do you know, so I really can't remember i think i was just browsing some books in waterstones once thought that was interesting read it realized they had quite a few more so yeah sim- <clears throat> very simple books as well and then from a copy standpoint, I don't know if I've got any favourite copywriters, if I'm honest. Um, yeah, that's a, a terrible answer, but yeah, there's no one. I mean, if you if you're looking at studying, who would be classed as the greats? I would say that Gary Halbert is someone everyone says. Dan Kennedy as well. Uh, there's a guy called Paris Lampropoulos who is excellent. Uh, I've seen him in person and just the way he can tell a story in person as well, is very impressive. Yeah. So yeah, I think for copy, I'd look at those guys and then yeah, my non copy writing writers. Uh, the other good one is uh, John Niven as well, who's very descriptive, writes about some pretty depraved stuff. I mean, there is a theme here that- the I was gonna are... say,
0: there's a theme coming out in what you're describing.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah those three guys I would say are my, my general favorites. Mike likes
0: stark and dark themes is basically how i would describe what we've uh what we've just heard so you know keep that in mind does, does like does do you think that how much of that stuff do you think influences the way you write and i would imagine more unconsciously than deliberately
1: i certainly think that i'm probably less influenced by copywriters than by other writers. Someone like Irving Welsh showed me that you can write in a completely different way and still, uh, still, well, not even still have impact, but you can have more impact by doing that. You can write in a way that's very personal to you. I mean, if most people you said to, oh, you can read this book, but a lot of it's in Scottish, you're going to have to get used to Scottish slang. They'd say that will never be successful. How will that work? But obviously he's had a, a very good career from it. And then I think John Niven is... He's almost like the literary equivalent of Malcolm Tucker from the thick of it in terms of the insults and how how demoralizing he can be towards people in his books is just I mean it's <laughs> artful and I don't I don't think I take things that far but I also think that's quite a quite an important skill to have so yeah that, those two have had a, a, a relatively big influence I'd say I would say that's
0: interesting to hear as well because <clears throat> I think one thing that makes a good writer a good person on camera a good presenter whatever is that they're very similar on the page or in front of you as they are in person like now it might be an amplification of their personality but it should still come across like the actual person themselves and so the nice thing for me hearing who mike likes reading is that you can you can see that in his writing and the types of jokes he likes and he likes making so there's an authenticity i think in that that is kind of congruent with the rest of it which i think is something you can't fake and you have to find within yourself and maybe that brings it right back to the thing you said earlier of like when we do stories and stuff no one else can tell the story that you will tell because you have your own specific spin on that and that's one of the great things that can't be replaced hopefully at least not anytime soon by ai is that you will have a unique spin if you can find your way of telling it so mike thanks very much uh, for coming on if people don't know where to find you and you want them to find you, or if you don't want them to find you, uh, tell the people where they can find you (laughs) or not. Uh,
1: So when I'm not spending time in Siberia, getting shredded, uh, (laughs) the best place would be probably Instagram, which I'm just uh, the coffee shop copywriter, all one word.
0: Perfect. Thanks, buddy.
1: Cheers, guys.